Okay, good morning everyone. Um, right, so I love communion. Um, I know it was a little bit of pandemonium this morning, but I think it was a, a perfect opportunity for us to, to celebrate what Christ has done as a family. At Real Life Church, we don't normally do it in the service because of the number of children and, and the, the logistics around it, but I think every now and again it's really good for us to to remember as a congregation that the reason that we come together, the reason that we have unity, the reason that we can um, share in God's presence in the way that we do with such freedom is, is not because we're amazing, it's not because we're super powerful, it's not because we're better than anyone else, it's not because God loves us more than anyone else, it's purely down to how amazing Jesus was and is and what He did for us. Um, and that's something that, that I pray we, we continue to do faithfully in life groups regularly. The Word reminds us to, to take communion as regularly as we meet. And I know a lot of people will go, oh, that's, you know, it, it can become so religious. It can lose its meaning. It just becomes a kind of token gesture. Um, and you know what? It, it can become that but it doesn't have to become that. If, if people with a sincere heart for Christ and a love for Christ observe communion regularly, it should never lose its meaning. At the end of the day, the, the wine and the bread are just symbols. They are just symbols. They're not, uh, not Jesus' actual blood and actual body. They are a symbolic reminder to us of what He, he did. And... Um, you're probably going, well, what's that got to do with the sermon today? It's actually got a lot to do with the sermon. Joshua is reminding the people of Israel in our text that we're going to be looking at today of how great God is. And he's reminding them of that because he's about to pass on and he's going to hand over the custodianship of Israel to another generation and he wants them to remember that God was good, God is good, and God will continue to be good. And the way that he does that is by using milestones and stories to remind the people of God of God's faithfulness. And that's what we do with communion. So it's pretty much got everything to do with the 24th chapter of Joshua, the final chapter of Joshua that we will be looking at in our series. Um, for those of you that, that joined us halfway through, this has been... It's been a marathon. It's, it's been, it's been a, a good job. And I still need to commend Stuart with um, the, the marvel of being able to come, take six chapters of Joshua and deal with it in one sermon. Um, and everyone walked out alive. Uh, and, you know, I'm speaking in jest, but the bottom line is there's so much that we can learn from this book. Um, and in the church, sometimes we like to go for the short books because they're easy to digest. But sometimes we need to go for those long historic books that look like they don't necessarily have anything to do with us because they're very ethnic in um, their, their narrative, but they have everything to do with the depth of the inheritance of the body of Christ. We inherit so much from what we see in the formation of Israel and through what Joshua accomplished through following faithfully what God promised to him. So, in some ways, it's bittersweet. We're going to be looking at it for the last time, in a sense, um, but there's something really important for us to pick up in this section. 
I'm sure you've all heard about great businesses that were, were established by a, a hard-working patriarch. Um, and the business then grows and, and stabilizes under the patriarch's son, and then the grandchildren come along, and their selfish desires and their greed and their, their need to fulfill everything that they want to do out of the business um, destroys that business. There's very little left by the time the third generation is, is finished with it. I'm sure you've You've all heard stories like that. You know, granddad started with nothing. I can think of at least three examples in my life of people that, that follow this narrative almost to, to the letter. Different people, different situations, but similar narrative. So granddad starts with nothing. He moves to a, a new country um, and he has a dream. He has a dream to, to provide for his family and hopefully his grandchildren and their children. He wants to leave a legacy and he's willing to sacrifice everything to make that dream come true. So he works really, really hard and he builds up this business from, from nothing, from no capital, from no resource, from no property, from nothing. And he works and he builds up slowly and he counts his beans and he looks after every single thing that he gets. And while he's doing that, dad, when dad is little, is watching granddad and he's learning from granddad and he he sees how hard he's working, how much he puts into his business and he learns the value of sacrifice. He sits at his side and he learns his, grand, his dad's trade, and he respects the pain that he sees that goes into the formation of the business. And so when the time is right and he takes over, he uses the strong foundation that's been established um, to grow the business. He's learned from everything that he's seen his father do firsthand. Um, but what lacks is he's never really understood the vision, passion, and perseverance of of his dad. He's seen it, and he's understood it with his head, but he hasn't had to go through it himself, so he doesn't understand exactly how it feels to his father. But he does well anyway. He, He gets the business to thrive. He gets all the capital in place, his balance sheet is looking healthy, it's all going well. He's building up a good reputation, people speak well about the business, they speak well about the family, things are going well. And he's been teaching his children about the business. But these children never saw what granddad went through to establish that. They've never experienced poverty, they've always been taken care of by the best doctors, by the best teachers, they've had a five-star education and they've never had to repay the cost of that. They've gone on the best holidays. When they got their driver's licenses, they got brand new cars. Um, They walked into the business with their MBAs and everything else that you need to be able to be a successful businessman. But they felt that they deserved to lavish the wealth of the business on themselves. Granddad's worked hard and they respect that, and Dad has worked hard to provide for them, but it's for them. It's no longer about the next generation, the legacy. It's something that they've inherited, and it becomes about themselves. And within a few few years, you see the business shrinking. You see the balance sheet starting to look a little nauseating, and um, the grandkids are all living in 
multitudes of far-flung exotic destinations, not because they can, but because they can't stand the sight of each other. The families are fractured. And um, before you know it, the business is down, down the, the plug hole, and the children all feel burnt out because of how demanding this business was, which is ironic in itself. The very legacy that drove granddad to sacrifice everything has been squandered by the ones that he's worked for. And, and we see it, and we think this is tragic. And we think, oh, well, at least we don't have to deal with that. That's, those are stories that are unique to the rich and the famous. But the principles are universal. And the lessons learned from stories like this should be applied to, to anything that we value. It should be applied to, to society. It should be applied to our families, and it should be applied to the church. So as we finish Joshua today, we're really looking in this text at Joshua doing his best to pass on the inheritance of Israel that he received from Moses. We're looking at dad passing on the inheritance from granddad, and this particular dad has done a remarkably good job of taking what Moses gave him and doing well with it. And I think this is an important thing for you to note. The inheritance of Israel wasn't just the land that they occupied. It was their story. Their story is part of their inheritance, and Joshua is doing a remarkably good job of translating that story again as he recommits Israel to God and renews the covenant. So, If we can get into the text, as I said, Joshua 24, we'll start at verse 1, and uh, here we go. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. When I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. You lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, 
arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that, the, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is je a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions, or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance.
After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. When we started Joshua, we heard the first words to Joshua by God were, do you remember them? Be strong and courageous. Do you remember? What was that about? It wasn't about warfare. It was about being faithful to God and His decrees. It was about standing up for God when everyone is opposed to Him, including your followers. Remember the story of Joshua is about God's faithfulness. It's about God's strength. It's about God's justice. It's about God's mercy, God's plans, and God's ways. The faithfulness of Israel played a part, but it was not the main driver. It was not the main imperative of Israel's successful campaign. Israel inherited the land because God fulfills His promises, not because Israel was more powerful, had more resources, or was smarter than the nations they overthrew. In fact, they were the very opposite. They had nothing in their favor, but they inherited the land. And that's the point of 24 verses 11 through 13. Remember my faithfulness. Remember that I gave you the land. You live in cities that you did not build. You farm lands that you did not um, develop. I overcame a multitude of different peoples for you. And now at the end of Joshua, we hear his words to those that he's entrusting to continue what he has been charged with by God. And that is really what I want to focus on today. This is, this is for us. The first thing he does is he renews the covenant with God. I don't know if you, you picked it up in the way I was reading through that, but if you read through the, f- the last chapter of Joshua very quickly, I don't think you pick up how much this sounds like a marriage ceremony. I don't think you pick up how much there's, a, there's an exchange of commitments and how Joshua challenges the people. He says, you must follow the Lord, and then they say, we will follow the Lord, and then he says, but you can't follow the Lord because if you foul up, He's going to have you. He's going to judge you. His, his justice is going to be harsh, and he's challenging them. He's saying, how serious are you about the words that are coming out of your mouth? This is a covenant that you are making before God. You are saying that you will follow him all your days, and you'll be faithful to him. How serious are you? And then they answer back, and they say, we understand the gravity of your words. Despite 
the chances that we may mess up and God will judge us for that, we are willing to give up everything to be faithful to God. It's a covenant. It sounds like a marriage ceremony, and it's really important that we understand how grave that was. We, we are saved once. We believe that. We are Protestant through and through, by grace, through faith, forever. We're saved once, but it's good at milestones for us to be mindful of the covenant between God and ourselves and to renew it. And at Real Life Church, as we've just done, and as we do at Life Groups, I said part of renewing it is by observing communion. It's grave, it's serious, it's important, but at the same time, it's joyful. It's an opportunity for us to rejoice in what Christ has done as we remember how we fall short and the great gap that He has covered up um, through His sacrifice. It's a good opportunity for us to do that. Don't ever let it become a religious observance. Don't ever let it become just a token gesture. So, Joshua reminds those that were to succeed of the great story of the faithful God whom Israel served. He says to them, remember, we do what we do because of God, and this is what He did. So you know what? He'll be faithful to continue in the same ways. I'm telling you the story not because I like history. I'm telling you the story because I'm building up your faith for what He's going to continue to do in the future. He's handing over to a new generation. And likewise, we need to tell our story to the generations that will take over from us. And not just when we're ready to leave, not just when we're on our deathbeds and we we realize there's a whole lot of stuff that I haven't said and I need to get my family around me and tell them now. That's too late. This isn't the first time that Joshua reminded the people of the faithfulness of God. We should be continually sharing our story, our personal stories of how God has worked in our lives, as well as the story of the church, even the historic story of the church. You know what? I know we're not all bookworms, but please do something to find out how remarkable the history of the church is. The fact that we're here today is a miracle. And if you can get that into your story and you can look at the faithfulness of God in the people that came before us and you can look at the faithfulness of God in the Bible to people that were generations before us, that just reinforces everything that we stand on, everything that we claim to believe. We've got to tell these stories. The story of Jesus, the story of a faithful God who fulfills His promises and is merciful to His sometimes very unfaithful people. It also bears saying that Joshua heard the story from Moses. Remember, granddad, dad, son. He's faithfully retelling what he was faithfully told. Now, the story is continued. From Joshua, we move into Judges. And in Judges 2, verses 10 through 14, there's a, there's a, a repeat of some of the phrases at the end of Joshua, and then it continues. Um, And it's not great. So I'm going to have a quick read of that for you. Judges 2, verses 10 through 14. 
and all, the, all that generation also, so these are the elders that outlived Joshua, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Here's the point. My main challenge to all of you today is this. Who are you learning from? And who are you teaching? Who are you learning from? And who are you teaching? It's tempting to look at the progression of the text in Joshua and then into Judges and think that the application, the direct application is to parents because primarily that is the party that's failed to transfer the historical revelation of God to the next generation. But truth be told, we are all parents and we are all children. We live in a society that tells us that we answer to no one, and that we're responsible for nobody other than ourselves. But the opposite is true. And sometimes we think that being a Christian is all about us becoming the best Christian we can become without taking any consideration about what's going on around us. And the truth is that Christianity is part of a tradition that is built in communities, families, and considers elders children and offspring. We live in that kind of inheritance, and that means that we are not islands. We're all mutually responsible for each other. Elders are there to teach, and youth are there to carry the mantle on. So for the most part, as I apply this, I'm going to be talking to parents, because I think there's a lot of richness in here for parents, but the principles in here, we need to apply to all of our contexts. And there's, there's three lessons for us out of this progression. So, just as a reminder, firstly, what's happened? The people revered and served the true God because Joshua and his generation kept the memory of God's mighty acts alive among the people. And then secondly, they pass away, and we have a new generation that arose and for some reason did not know God or His work for Israel. Thirdly, what we see in Judges is this new generation forsook true worship and turned to other gods. And fourthly, finally, God brought the judgment of His wrath upon them. Joshua's warning comes to fruition. And the three lessons for us are very, very simple today because we don't have a massive amount of time, but I think they are so necessary. First, when the knowledge of God is preserved in a community, especially by those who have personally experienced His power, 
his faith, his, sorry, his faithfulness, when those stories are shared, when that knowledge is shared, faith is nourished. It's nurtured, it's fed, and it flourishes. And you know what else flourishes? Obedience. Obedience to elders, obedience to God's establishment, and obedience to God Himself. Secondly, if we allow our children to grow up without this knowledge of God, we serve not only their ignorance and unbelief, but ultimately we serve in their destruction. And in this world, we don't like to talk about that, but we need to take on that responsibility as parents and understand that the way we raise our children has massive consequences on their future salvation. I understand that God is a miracle-working God, and He can save people from any situation whatsoever, but He has also given families the primary responsibility for laying the seedbed of faith. And when we do that well, we live in the principles of God and things go well for us. Of course, God can deliver anybody from anywhere. Thirdly, therefore, it is the duty of us all to teach our children about God and His saving work so that the next generation, so that the next generation will know and be saved. It's not just about our children, it's about their children. And so, the first two lessons lead to the last ones. That's what I'm, I'm going to focus on. It's God's will that parents assume responsibility to teach their children what God has revealed about Himself. It is we parents who have the first and foremost responsibility to see that our children think correctly about God. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to send your children off to school and to listen to the lessons that they come back with, mostly good, but there's some stuff in there you just scream inside. You think, oh, help me, Lord. I cannot believe what they are learning at school. How are they going to survive? I know what it's like when they finished with school and they want to go and hang out with friends, and you're kind of like, yeah, I want my kids to have friends. I want them to hang out. I don't want them to be isolated. They've got to be with their friends, but when they come back, you're like, oh, gosh, Everything I've been teaching them is being undone every time they hang out with their friends. I want to lock them up in a room until they, they're old enough and wise enough to deal with all of this stuff. It doesn't work like that. The primary responsibility for them understanding and knowing about God and His ways is the parents at home. And you know what? The, what you teach them at home sets the scene for how they deal with all of the challenges and all of the opposition and all of the false teaching that they get when they're outside of the home. Again, we live in a world that tells us if you want your children educated, teachers are best qualified to educate them, so we hand them over to teachers. And we kind of say, well, you know, that they've got to deal with that, and if they do a bad job, then we'll blame them. But we come from a tradition we come from a faith that says our children are our responsibility. The way they learn and, and um, how they are, are prepared to deal with a world that is angry against God is our responsibility. The most influential theological teachers they'll ever have are mom and dad. So it's not just about school, it's also about when they go out here to children's church on a Sunday 
we are very privileged to be able to have our children learning about God on a Sunday. But if that's the only day they're learning about God, it's not enough. It's not enough. What they learn on a Sunday will be shaped by what they see on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday by their parents. The way you model your lives in front of your children will shape their theology. The most important text from the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. It's the most important commandment in all of Jewish Scripture, and you need to say this with me as I start. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus said that was the first and great commandment. And every Jew knew, like, I want every one of you to know what comes next in this amazing text. And these words which I command you shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. The first assignment a parent has after loving God is to store God's Word in his heart and to teach it to his children. These same two priorities, to your own heart and to your, chul- to chul- to your children, sorry, are also commanded in Deuteronomy 4 verse 9. Take heed and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So grandparents, you don't get out of this. It's not just about spoiling them with ice creams. Yeah? You've got to be sharing the Word of God with your grandchildren. And again, in Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 and 19, you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall teach them to your children. God's design for the preservation of historical revelation, I know we've got personal revelation as well, but His design for the preservation of historical revelation is primarily the family. And Joel sums it up in a perfect little nugget, Joel 1 verse 3, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. And you think, what about the New Testament? When The Apostle Paul instructed parents and children how to relate to each other in a Christian household in Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 or Colossians 3 verses 20 and 21. He simply reaffirmed the Old Testament pattern. He didn't come up with a new design. Often what you see in the New Testament is is things are mentioned in explicit detail if there's a change, there's a shift from old to new. But where New Testament writers don't really deal with the subject in depth, in detail, you can take it for granted that what's happening is those principles move through from the Old to the New Testament pretty much unchanged. And Paul um, reinforces the Old Testament perspective on how children are to be raised and the responsibility for sharing God's knowledge with them. And essentially it is, children obey your parents. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as you can see, it's God's will that parents assume primary responsibility under God for getting biblical 
and doctrinal knowledge into the heads and hearts of their children. And evidently what's happened here in Judges 2 verse 10 is that generation that preceded the generation that uh, grew up didn't do a very good job of that. They neglected their responsibility. And the result of that was not just a generation that forsook the Lord and kind of messed things up, but they were plundered. They could not resist their enemies. They were taken off into exile eventually and taken away from their land. And that is a grave responsibility. It's not just, oh, my kids are going to misbehave. It's that you can be serving their destruction. There are a few objections that I have come across myself um, and others that I've read about, which I think are insane, but I'll go through all of them just in case they're in your mind. Just three objections um, about sharing God with your children. First, some parents might say that um, we have no right to prejudice a child regarding what they will accept as true. It's uh, better to leave all religious options open, and then when they choose, it will be owing to an authentic commitment, not to parental authority. And there are four problems with that objection. Firstly, as we've just seen, it goes counter to, to all of the teaching of Scripture that parents are to teach truth about God. So let's say, okay, well, we'll be a little more postmodern about it and we'll ignore that one for now because we could deconstruct those texts and look at it differently. Secondly, can I just put this out there? It's impossible not to teach children about God. Not teaching them about God teaches them plenty. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll give you an example. It teaches them that Jesus doesn't matter much if you never talk about him, but all that you talk about, all that you consider is um, weekends away, new furniture, dad's new job, um, all of the other things that, that fill your conversation, how, what, what enrichment programs are best for your children, how are we going to save up for a new house, um, what about a, a new car? These are things that we talk about all the time. And then what do we do in the evenings? We, we probably have some family television on, so we watch that. And then on the weekends, we're away trying to entertain ourselves because mom and dad are tired of work and um, they just want to kind of switch off for a little bit. But we never talk about God. That teaches our children a ton about how we regard God in our own lives, whether it's true or not. Our silence about Christ is dogma. Not to teach the infinite value of Christ in our lives is to teach that He is negligible, that He's a nice little sticker, or He's that book that we take to church on a Sunday that then ends up on our bookshelf the rest of the week. He is part of our culture, part of our tradition, but he has no real significance or importance in our daily lives. We teach plenty to our children by not teaching them about Jesus. And then thirdly, it's not true that teaching children about God has to make them close-minded or, or irrationally prejudiced. It might be if parents are insecure and they have their, their own 
issues around their faith. It's, it's built on sand, and they're not quite sure why they believe what they believe, so they become defensive in the way that they teach about Jesus. But if parents see compelling reasons for being a Christian, they will impart those to their children as well. Nobody accuses a parent of prejudicing a child's cosmology by um, saying that the world is round. Some parts of the world, maybe people will say that's wrong, but we believe it to be true. We sincerely believe it to be true, and we've got good reasons to believe it to be true. So most people will not go, oh, you're prejudicing your child by telling them that the world's round. It might be flat, you know. Um, And equally so, that the sun really stands still while the earth turns around it. Now, I know that's not 100% true as well, but for the sake of relatively speaking, the sun stands still, the earth spins around it. Those little shiny lights in the sky, those are actually massive stars. No one's going to go, you shouldn't be teaching children that. They need to find out for themselves and decide for themselves what they want to believe. If you've got good reason for your faith, you shouldn't feel that that will become a prejudicial thing your children either. And fourthly, it's simply unloving and cruel to not give a child what they need most. What do we profess as Christians? We believe that only by following Christ in obedience of faith can a child be saved for eternity, escape the torments of hell, and enjoy the delights of heaven. If you don't teach them about Him, when you believe that, it's incredibly cruel. A second objection that some parents may raise is, I I don't know enough about the Bible and about doctrine to teach my children and to answer their hard questions. And there's two reasons why this shouldn't stop you. Okay, first reason is that it's never too late to begin to study and to grow in your grasp of the Bible. It's never too late. And you know what else? you may be a better teacher for that than a college professor or a veteran um, because you're learning it fresh yourself. Most sixth-form students don't realize that when they take a course from a teacher, especially a young teacher who's teaching a course for the first time, they often don't know quite as much as those students think they do. They're staying just a step ahead. They're working just ahead of the students. They've got the course material. They have two advantages. They know what's coming up and they can prepare. And secondly, they're a little, little more well-equipped in problem-solving so, and they're able to hold a class. But in terms of knowledge, they're probably just a few steps ahead in terms of the curriculum. And I would say to you, if your challenge is that you don't feel like you, you have a doctorate in theology, um, join the rest of us and start getting a grasp of the Bible and taking your kids on the journey with you, teaching them as you learn. So take, take, take the example of the, the new sixth form teacher. The second reason your sense of inadequacy shouldn't stop you is that, that there's some tremendously invaluable lessons for your children to learn from you in that. You can teach your child humility. If you're secure enough in God to show your ignorance rather than bluff and be a hypocrite, your children learn the beauty of humility. It's okay to say, you know what, that's a really good question. I don't have a clue. Now, why don't we go and find out together? 
So that brings me to the second point. You can, you can teach your children about taking initiative in solving problems of a theological nature and for life in general. So if you're reading 1 Samuel and you don't have a clue what Ebenezer means in 7 verse 12, you can say, let's look it up. We've got this magic thing called Google now. Um, You can get it on your phone and you can find out within a number of seconds uh, a multitude of opinions on what Ebenezer means. And you can teach your children how to use the internet or, my preference, other references that have been around a little while and you can validate rather than just anybody's opinion. Um, And you can communicate your own seriousness about answering their questions. This means something to you. It's not just, an, oh, I don't really know, or, oh, it's not that important. I'm taking these things seriously, and you should too. You're teaching them a value by doing that. Don't let a sense of ignorance and inadequacy stop you. God wants you to grow, and He will help you do what is right. A final objection from some parents uh, may be that my children just won't sit still long enough to listen to a Bible passage or receive instructions. And it's a real challenge. Um, the, the, the multitude of parenting courses out there is, is testimony to the fact that this is a, a big issue in our society. And the norm, honestly, seems to be that we, we tend to pacify, entertain, and distract our children rather than discipline, direct, and instruct them. Um, and I don't believe that the Bible is out of date when it tells us that we should discipline our children and that we should expect them to obey us. It's hard. It takes time. It takes effort. You have an enormous amount of emotional conflict inside of you and a sense of inadequacy most of the time. But the battle is so worth it. Nothing has changed in the nature of children in the last few thousand years to make the words of Proverbs unwise today. When Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Or when Proverbs 19 verse 18 says, Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not set your heart on his destruction. Or Proverbs 22, verse 15, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. Or Proverbs 29, verses 15 and verse 17, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. As soon as a child is old enough, to understand your command, and has the physical ability to do it, they should be taught what is right to do, and then they should be disciplined for not doing it until they obey at home and in public. I really believe that. Now, how you decide to do that, I think we can debate for a very long time, but we should expect obedience from our children. And if I was speaking to a a group of um, abusive people, I'd say a lot of other things. I'd say the Bible is very, very clear that hugging and kissing and tumbling and loving and forgiving and and spending time with your children are all just as important. Absolutely. But I think for the most part, if I look at parents in their 20s and 30s, the tendency is to have expectations of obedience that are too low. And um, 
discipline that's too late and lacks firmness and rigor and consistency. I'm not a child psychologist. I'm speaking from my understanding of Scripture and my experience with my three children. And we're not out of the woods yet. But I think they're doing okay. There's some stuff, stuff I still cry about every night. There's some stuff we still struggle with. We still try and understand exactly how to grapple with them, especially when they change. They go through all these different life stages, and you think you've got it, and then all of a sudden the next day they're a different person. And the strategies that we were using aren't working anymore. But one thing that we've always been consistent with, whether they've been obedient or not, is that we expect it from them. Even when we're wrong, even when they think we're being unreasonable, we expect them to be obedient. So my encouragement then is this, parents, we have loads of children at real life, and we are blessed that they get to learn about God on a Sunday, but they learn far more about Him from you than you will ever know. Fill your conversations with God and pray with your children and answer their questions about God and teach them how to learn about God as much, if not more, than you teach them about anything else. Remember, not teaching them is in fact teaching them much. And then secondly, can, can the worship team come up? Secondly, um, to all of us, whether you're parents or not, we're all responsible to be learning about God from the generation that precedes us and teaching the generation after us. We're fortunate at Real Life Church to have many faithful people who have wonderful, wonderful stories of faith to share and are willing to support and mentor the next generation. Can I ask us to do something as we close and in the next few weeks? Could we pray and ask God who we should be learning from. Who can mentor us? And while you're at it, ask Him who you can mentor. And what can you offer the generation below you? And how can you be faithful in telling the story of God and perpetuating His fame and His glory in the world, not just for your generation, but the generation that comes next and the generation that follows after them. Yeah? So, Lord, we just want to thank you that, that through the lessons of Joshua, we can learn so much about our own lives we can learn so much about our connectedness to a community that spans back into history and has, is born out of the promises of a faithful God to one man. And Lord, we ask that as we are part of that inheritance, you give us insight into how we can continue telling your story. So Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us who should we be learning from, who can we look up to as a mentor? Who can we approach and say, teach me? Teach me what you have learned in your years of walking with God. And Lord, give us pictures as well of the people that we should be mentoring, the people that we should be looking after, the people that we should be encouraging, the people we should be correcting and directing and challenging as Joshua did to the generation that came after him. 
We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy. Okay.